Welcome to the BCP Proper's podcast, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the Book of Common Prayer. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector of Christ Church here in South Bend, Indiana. Thanks for joining us again. So this episode will discuss the first Sunday in Lent. We had an episode devoted to Ash Wednesday, which begins the season, and now here we are on the first Sunday. And this Sunday will emphasize fasting, which is a main issue throughout the season of Lent. Now, what is Lent? It is a season of the church year leading into Easter, 40 days or roughly thereabouts. Uh, This practice seems to go back to the early church. We can see it at the Council of Nicaea. There was a uh, 40-day period of fasting and preparation at that point with a special focus on the baptism of new converts. And then over the years, it was expanded to all Christians as a devotional and penitential practice. Now, yes, over the years, there were challenges, distortions, changes to uh, all of the ascetic disciplines, as well as fasting and Lent. And so at the time of the Protestant Reformation, this was a source of controversy. Uh, The Swiss Reformed, they kicked off their protests by eating sausages during Lent. And even Luther is a bit nervous about uh, insisting on a 40-day fast. But the Anglicans retained the custom and practice. They do still promote fasting during Lent and using the season as a time of repentance and uh, considering the meaning of our own death and the death of Christ. There were, of course, the necessary uh, theological corrections. And so in the book of homilies, there is an, uh, a homily about fasting. It's called a homily on good works and fasting or principally fasting. And there, the theology and ideology of fasting is laid out. It's clear to say that fasting is not in itself uh, essentially a good work, certainly is not one done to merit God's favor or forgiveness. And that's important because some of the earlier uh, liturgies uh, said essentially that. We can find prayers in pre-Reformation liturgies which say uh, that we conduct our discipline of Lent to obtain the pardon of sins. And so the Anglicans were clear to reject that sort of doctrine, that fasting in and of itself achieves anything. Uh, It is rather an instrument, a means by which we can ourselves internally repent and come closer to God. And the homily also says that we may never command fasting as if it is absolute doctrine commanded by God here and now. Uh, but rather we can uh, give instructions and calls for fasting uh, as the church or other human authorities deem fit. can be a little bit of a fine distinction there. Uh, And so you can think about uh, the words of George Herbert. He says, God says to fast, and the church says, now, or when to fast. Uh, Fasting as a discipline, is all over the scriptures. We see people fasting. Uh, Moses fasts, Elijah fasts, the Ninevites fast, uh, Jesus himself fasts. And when Jesus gives caution and instruction about fasting, he does not say, if you fast, but rather, when you fast. 
So God does uh, give us the teaching that we should fast, but it's the particulars that aren't commanded. And so other earthly authorities can say uh, when to fast. Let's fast now and for this long. And even at this point, that's not a total point of division between, say, Anglicans and Puritans. Uh, the Westminster Directory of Worship has a place for fasts. The church can call fasts. The difference, though, is the Anglicans retained that regularity that we'll be fasting uh, on this calendar date, on these days, uh, whereas the Puritans wanted them to only really be ad hoc. That's the big difference there. Um, but the call to Lent, then, is a, a sanctified, traditionally inspired human law. But nevertheless, if it's called by good and valid authorities, uh, you ought to follow it. Now, in the Anglican tradition, it's also helpful to notice that the how to fast is left largely open. Yes, there were certainly those occasions when you couldn't eat any meat in England other than fish, but if you read carefully, that's uh, almost always explained as a civic or political ruling. You don't get specific teachings in the articles or the catechisms, the prayer book, uh, on exactly how to fast, what to give up, or when. And when you read other Anglican writers, uh, such as, say, Jeremy Taylor, they'll talk about a total abstinence, giving up all eating, or maybe only eating once a day, something like that, or giving up all of one sort of thing, giving up meat. And they'll lay that as an option. But they'll also speak of reducing what you eat, eating less, uh, fewer items on your plate, smaller portions, or giving up extras, say foregoing cheese or cream, no desserts, things of this sort. That's also a kind of fast, reducing. And Jeremy Taylor talks about how there are some people who ought not fast, uh, women with child, for instance, young children, aged, those are sick, someone who's traveling and therefore under a special duress. Uh, and so there were lots of exceptions, and uh, usually it was left to the individual to decide exactly how to fast. But the chief component of fasting, the most essential thing, is actually not the giving up of the food, per se, but actually the uh, separating oneself, the ceasing from ordinary earthly concerns, and taking time to particularly focus on God, His Word, and prayer. And so really, fasting is, is sort of like a mini-Sabbath practice. And if you can do nothing else, you should at least take extra time during fast seasons to stop what you're doing, to focus more on devotional time, prayer, reading God's Word. And so other Lenten practices that have been suggested over the years would be a more regular praying of the litany. Perhaps uh, every Wednesday and Friday. Maybe you want to even try it every day. Uh, others have suggested uh, the regular reading of Psalm 51. So again, you could do that a few times a week or uh, daily. Uh, and that would be an additional uh, Lenten discipline to focus yourself on repentance, God's word. So with that little intro on fasting, let's look at uh, the first Sunday in Lent. 
Now, the collect right away sets the tone here. It talks about fasting, but it talks about Jesus' fasting. And not merely that it's an example, but that it achieves something. This also shows up in the litany. There's a, a line in there going through the works of Christ that helped to deliver us. And it actually says, by thy baptism, fasting, and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. And so we'll see in the prayer book that the value of fasting is first and foremost Christ's own fasting, which achieved an important part of our salvation. And we'll hear that in the collect as well. Here is the collect for the first Sunday in Lent. O Lord, who for our sake didst fast forty days and forty nights, give us grace to use such abstinence that our flesh, being subdued to the Spirit, we may ever obey thy godly motions and righteousness and true holiness. To thy honor and glory, who livest and reignest with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. So here you can see fasting in the 40-day period. That's in the first line. But it's actually talking about Christ's fasting. He did it for our sake. And so then we ask, because he did that, we ask to have grace to use similar abstinence, such abstinence, that our flesh might be subdued. And notice here, it's not merely that our flesh might be subdued to our spirit, but that our flesh might be subdued to the spirit, the spirit of God. So we're praying that God would bless our time of fasting and abstinence so that we might submit more and more to him, that we might obey his godly motions, the leading of the Spirit. And so that's another part of fasting, is to get uh, away from ourselves, not to always follow our urges and desires, but to say no to them, that we might be more and more attuned to the motions of God, that we might feel and detect His Spirit, how it leads us, so that we might follow it into true righteousness and holiness. Now, on to the scripture readings for this week. The first is the epistle from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And it goes on, and it talks about how that we will have sufferings in much patience, afflictions, necessities, in distress, in stripes, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, and watchings, and fastings. And so Paul is talking about the way that we need God's grace to take us through times of trial, times of uh, self-denial. And it, he's asking that we might have God's power to put on the armor of righteousness so that we might triumph over dishonor and deceivers. And here's the final uh, section of this reading I think is very important for the season of Lent. As deceivers, but as true, as unknown and yet well-known, 
as dying, and behold, we live. As chastened, and not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That ending is a celebration of opposites, isn't it? Paradoxes. Uh, it's as if we are poor, but we're really rich. We're spoken of as deceivers, but we know we're true. This is probably where Herbert, once again, uh, gets the idea to say, uh, welcome feast of Lent. Even though it's a fast season, right? Uh, we're making ourselves low, denying ourselves, abasing ourselves, but we know that in Christ we are, in fact, rich. We're, we're blessed even in our uh, sufferings. And that's why this selection was chosen for this week, to set the tone that while externally we are humbled, low, denying ourselves, afflicting our bodies, we know that internally we are blessed. And this practice is a way to become content in all things, to gain self-control. Uh, the homily for fasting, again, lays out three reasons to fast, and the first is self-control, to gain mastery over the flesh. Uh, the others, by the way, would be extra time for prayer, and then a particular focus on repentance. But I think that mastery over the flesh really is coming out in this reading. We are training ourselves to be content, to be able to live during a season of deprivation, a season of challenge and affliction, but to do so with uh, happy hearts in the knowledge that our salvation is near, that what's on the outside isn't the whole story, it isn't the full truth at all. And so an ascetic discipline, a practice of fasting is Treating, uh, is training us, getting us accustomed to that sort of reality, so that if it happens involuntarily, if, if the conditions and occasions of our life bring it upon us, we're ready. We can handle it. We're prepared. Now the gospel reading, uh, St. Matthew chapter 4, The Temptation of Christ. Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out the mouth of God. Again, this passage clearly selected for the topical theme of fasting. Christ goes out into the wilderness, so he's, he's set apart, he's separated. He fasts 40 days and 40 nights, clearly a recapitulation of the Exodus experience here, isn't it? Of course, Matthew 3 ends with baptism, so Christ passes through the waters, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then has a period of 40 where he is tempted and tried. He is the new Israel. But the difference is Christ is going to succeed where Israel failed. Now the text tells us he was hungry. That's important. Even though we know Christ is divine, he was also man, two natures. 
And it's not the case that this fasting was possible because he had no hunger. He did have hunger, but through God's power and spirit, he overcame that hunger. But the hunger is here. That's a real internal desire and appetite. And the devil tries to exploit it. You don't have to fast anymore. Just make some bread. Come on, you can, if thou be the Son of God. You see the temptation there. Prove yourself. But Christ answers with the scriptures, quoting from the Torah. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Obedience is better. Listening to God is better. So then the second temptation, the devil takes him on the, uh, to the holy city, sits him on the pinnacle of the temple, saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash their foot against a stone. Now here, Satan's gotten even craftier. He appeals to the scriptures, quoting from the Psalms, Psalm 91, actually, which uh, it just so happens shows up in the Psalter cycle for this Sunday on 2024. How about that? And so Satan appeals to the scripture, but gives it a false meaning. He twists it, trying to get Jesus to disobey. And so Jesus answers with scripture. It is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then again, the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Another temptation. And though this one might strike us as something bad and illicit, it's actually entirely appropriate for Christ to desire the nations. Do you remember Psalm 2? I will tell you the decree of the Lord. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall make thy nations thy inheritance. That was indeed the Messiah's rightful reward. All the nations of the world. But here, the sin is that Satan asks to be worshipped. Satan puts himself in the place of God, that he could be the giver of the good gift. But again, Christ conquers. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Christ again answers with Scripture, knowing the true intent. And just as we're told in James, resist the devil and he shall flee from you, here at this point the devil leaves. And angels come to minister to Christ. So Jesus triumphs over the temptation. He resists appeals to the flesh. And so he keeps his fast. But because of this triumph, this fasting and temptation in which Christ is victorious, that we too can be victorious. He uh, succeeds where Israel fails. He passes his test. From this point, he'll go on uh, into his public ministry. This is part of Christ's righteousness for us. 
And because of this, he could become that suitable sacrifice, that perfect representative and substitute for us. And we can be forgiven, counted righteous by God, and even empowered to also have victory over sin. That's what we learn from this gospel passage. And so we take the epistle and gospel reading together as different commentaries and explanations on the good of fasting. The epistle speaking more of our own fasting, the gospel speaking more of Christ's fasting. And together they set the tone for not only the Sunday, but the season of Lent. Now, we'll move on to the Old Testament readings, those first lessons which appear in morning and evening prayer. The first lesson uh, for morning prayer comes from Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. And this is one of the darkest passages in uh, all of Scripture, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Uh, And it's really striking that that's how you're going to start Lent. You might think of Anglicans as, as rather uh, uptight, concerned about propriety, maintaining appearances. So you would think surely the, the lectionary is going to avoid some of these nastier passages on a Sunday morning. No, not so. Not the older prayer book. For the first Sunday of Lent, we're going to get one of the darkest, ugliest stories of all. And in this Genesis 19 reading, Uh, The Lord has already visited Abraham along with two angels, and he sends those angels then to visit Lot in Sodom. And as the angels arrive in town, for some reason the people of Sodom immediately want to accost them, to do them harm, and and perhaps even to commit some sort of rape. Uh, The literal translation is that they want to know the men. But it's quite clear that that means carnal relations of some sort. Uh, A really striking thing right off the bat. I mean, who does that? That the men just uh, from town just immediately want to swarm the strangers and do this. Some sort of uh, dominance here. Some sort of overt wickedness. Brings to mind the conditions before the flood. Where uh, the sons of God would seize the daughters of men where the whole earth is full of violence and wickedness. Uh, And that these are angels is also quite dark. Um, Perhaps here there's also some implicit uh, cosmic warfare. Uh, These men of Sodom are so wicked and evil, they're perhaps possessed or inspired by demons, uh, seeds of the serpent. And when the sons of God, uh, so to speak, when angels arrive, uh, they want to have their way with them. It's quite dark, quite harsh. Um, This is a sin, yes, against hospitality. That's what the prophets will say. But hospitality is a big concept in the ancient world. It had to do with the duty to welcome guests, strangers and sojourners, uh, to treat them as if they were of your own household, to welcome them in, provide and protect for them. Indeed, that's what Lot is going to do. He's going to welcome them in, protect them. He knows the danger. The epistle to the Hebrews seizes on this idea when it says that we should be hospitable, we should welcome strangers. And it says, because people have so entertained angels unaware. 
But the men of Sodom are not hospitable. Indeed, they wish to uh, steal, to seize, to rape. And yes, this is also an example of disordered sexuality. Uh, Jude tells us that the men of Sodom went after strange flesh. So sexual sin and sensing its hospitality are not opposites. It's not like you have to choose those. They actually quite go together. Uh, and rape is extremely inhospitable. Uh, strange flesh, homosexual desire and activity, uh, clearly a perversion and a distortion against God's true intention of marriage between a man and a woman, a helper fit and suited for man. So the Sodom and Gomorrah story is extremely dark. You've also got this crazy, dark, evil situation where Lot, scrambling to decide what to do, offers his daughters as sort of a substitutionary sacrifice. Take my daughters. You can have them. Just don't harm the men. Not a shining moment for Lot. Won't be his last disgraceful action uh, with these daughters, even. Um, and again, just dark showing the evils of sin, the, the havoc it can wreak on us. But God doesn't allow this. No, you will not sacrifice your own children. Uh, and so the angels strike the men of the town blind. That buys them time. And then God delivers Lot and his family out of Sodom while raining fire and brimstone upon the city. Of course, we can't hear this story today without connecting fire and brimstone to the judgment of hell. That language was used in the combination homily, by the way, that God rains down fire and brimstone. So that should be on our minds. And so this picture in Genesis 19 of human depravity and sin and also God's judgment against sin, even hell. This is an ultimate uh, law passage. We're going to use that theological language of law and gospel. Kicking off Lent with the extreme depth of sin and the curse of the law but a picture of deliverance for God's elect. Now, the first lesson for evening prayer is Genesis 22. And this is also a picture of an extreme situation, God asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And again, there's something here of a parallel where Lot was coming up with this idea of sacrificing his daughters to save the angels, uh, this is a bit of a reversal. God asking for something of a human sacrifice. We'll find out later what, what happens, though. And this is also an extremely dangerous situation because the child is the promised seed. God speaks to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your, your son, your, your only son, the son whom you love. Someone this week was telling me that there's a passage in the medieval Jewish theologian Maimonides where he's sort of having a bit of rhetorical fun with this, uh, as if Abraham was saying, which son is it? Then take your son. Which son? Your only son. Well, maybe maybe you could take 
the half, uh, the other children, the son I had illicitly. No, no, the son whom you love. It's got to be the chosen son, the beloved Isaac, the one in whom the covenant seed should come. And God asked Abraham to make Isaac a burnt offering on the mountain. And Abraham obeys. Incredible uh, testimony of faith, but uh, really of supernatural trust. Isaac at this time most likely is not a little boy. And we can see this because he's paying attention. He's his father. I see we have uh, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the lamb? Where is the, the sheep? He's old enough to know something's going on here. And Abraham even has him carrying the wood up the mountain. So this has got to be a, a young man. I mean, even, even sort of middle schoolers would struggle with that. So this has got to be uh, a boy that is physically big enough to carry this. And Abraham at this time is probably getting rather old in age himself, and so it wouldn't at all be unreasonable to think of Isaac being more physically fit and capable than Abraham at this time. And that's important because it shows not only a trustfulness and obedience on Abraham's part towards God, but also a faith and obedience on Isaac's part, that in many ways he is a willing sacrifice. And so Abraham's answer also is important. He says, God himself will provide. So he doesn't exactly know what's going to happen, but he trusts God. He knows what God is like. He knows that God has already made a promise, and so somehow God's got to make it work. The epistle to the Hebrews says, Abraham uh, reasoned, that God was able to raise the son from the dead. So perhaps Abraham is even prepared to kill Isaac, to sacrifice him, but he knows that surely God will bring him back. Now, as it happens, he doesn't have to do that. God takes him right to that climactic endpoint, the the Son has been bound on the altar even, and the, the blade is in the air, so to speak. And that's when God stops him. Uses the intercessory means of an angel, by the way. So again, angels in the Genesis 19 reading, angels in the Genesis 22 reading. An angel speaks, but he speaks the voice of God. and says, do not harm the lad. Now I see that you love God, that you trust, that you believe, that you obey. Abraham's faith has been demonstrated, and he looks up, and what does he see? A ram caught in the thicket. Now, was this ram there the whole time? I don't think so. I think God provided it. God made it so. And so the deliverance of Isaac, also the deliverance of Abraham, and not having to do this appears. God provides a substitute, and that lamb dies in Isaac's place. And this 
this great sacrifice becomes the paradigm of all sacrifices. Uh, the whole sacrificial system is really founded on this, a substitute for the death of the firstborn beloved son. Substitutionary atonement, the father having to give up his son for the sake of salvation. This is the foundation of the whole system, really. And it's interesting, this is read evening prayer on the first week of Lent, it will also be called for on Good Friday. This same passage is read as the first lesson for morning prayer on Good Friday. So the prayer book wants us to make this connection. The sacrifice of Isaac comes to its fulfillment in the sacrifice of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, uh, the Son whom he loved, the beloved Son. God the Father gave that Son to die as a sacrifice so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Lamb. John the Baptist says so, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus appears as a lamb in the Apocalypse, uh, John's Revelation. He is the great substitute who dies in our place when we should have been sacrificed. God provides him. And so as the story of Abraham and Isaac begins, you might think of uh, Abraham is God the father, and Isaac is the son, father and the son. Isaac certainly having Christological images, bearing wood on his back as he ascends a mount. But then we find out that actually you know, God is in heaven still, and he is providing his substitute so that neither Abraham nor Isaac have to die and go through with this. And Isaac and Abraham then become images and types of us. They benefit from God's mercy and grace. And so this Genesis 22 reading is a, is a gospel passage. We have the law in the morning, the gospel in the evening, and we can see here how they are setting the tone for Lent. Not directly necessarily commenting on the epistle gospel readings from communion, but speaking about the whole broader seasonal picture. That while we are fasting and repenting of our sins, seeking to have uh, mastery over the flesh so that we're not led by its desires, that we're not sensual people like the men of Sodom, and that we can be so willing to go without, so in control of ourselves, that we can obey God when he calls for us to make great sacrifices. But we know that all of this is founded on his goodness and grace, his willingness to deliver us and redeem us by his Son, Jesus Christ. So a great example of how the prayer book lectionary works here, both having a commentary within itself about the different passages sometimes, but then other times speaking more uh, 
sort of macro level about the larger season of the year and then how we can apply that to our lives as Christians. And of course, Lent is not merely for its own sake. We're not doing this just to talk about an interesting uh, seasonal activity, but to come to a better understanding of discipline, of repentance, of being able to hear God's voice and obey it to grow in righteousness and holiness. And that has to always be tied to the gospel. And so Genesis 22 being selected here is an anchor and foundation point that this is only possible because of the radical love that God had for us, the effectual grace that comes from the death of Christ for us, that we might be saved. Well, that's it for this week's episode discussing the first Sunday in Lent and the larger theology of Lent. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here, please check out other episodes, the uh, BCP Proper's podcast, uh, and go out and get yourself a copy of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer so you can better understand these lectionary readings and it can help you grow deeper in the scriptures. And then at seasons of the year like this, it can also train you more to pray, to repent, to gain self-control. Well, please tune in again next time. Until then, I am your host, Stephen Wedgworth. This has been the BCP Proper's Podcast.